Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Techspansive. I'm Sean Dubervac at Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Reticle Research. Thanks for joining us. We're going to dive right in to uh, Google I.O. and talk about some of the things that are coming out of Google I.O. And then we've got a few ideas for you for our lightning round to follow. Ross, I really feel like Google I.O. is becoming one of the defining developer conferences of the, of the year and one of the defining weeks of the year. There's always a tremendous amount of information that comes out. They've done a very good job, at least in the last couple of years, of showing some new ideas and, and pushing forward some new features. And certainly we saw that this year. I think before it used to be more about seeing what kinds of devices and search technologies they were unveiling in many established categories or in, in, in venues that were familiar to consumers, but particularly over the last two years, it has really become more about showing new kinds of technologies, new kinds of capabilities that have never been seen really before, thanks to their investments in artificial intelligence and machine learning. And there was certainly no shortage of that at this year's event. So the big news kicking things off, we saw it in an op-ed, we saw it in it really throughout the entire conference was Google's focus on privacy or that or rather their perspective on privacy. And this was a an answer to the challenge that they have been receiving from Apple about how privacy is a fundamental right, which has been something of a swipe against Facebook and Google. And Google's response is that privacy is not a luxury good, which is clearly a, a reference to some of Apple's products. But really, the approaches have been very different. And this is something that I wrote about in my ZDNet column this week. When Apple designs products, they are, and we saw this in their media products that they introduced a, a while back, they are trying to design them so that the question of whether you need to share data just doesn't come up. The default is that you don't have to share data. That's how they're trying to design them. Even if that means, for example, that they need to leave off some degree of personalization or that they need to rely on a subscription model because advertising would require sharing of that information. For Google, of course, a lot of their business is based on having that information, whether it be for personalizing ads or a lot of the machine learning work that they're doing that requires a large database of users. So they're all about giving you the controls to decide what you want to share. And, and indeed, a lot of what they showed at I.O. was about surfacing more of those controls and extending some of those controls, but they are going to pitch as hard as they can. Here are the compelling reasons why you should be sharing the information with us. And that was shown in everything from personalization of the new Nest Hub Max experience, which has a camera, to potentially creating earlier detection of certain kinds of cancer. Uh, at, at a rate that even most advanced radiologists can't necessarily uh, identify or oncologists. So do you think this is where the privacy debate 
settles out. So we also saw them introduce new features or to your point, extend new features like Google Maps is going to have an incognito mode. So there in the past, if you searched for a location and if you navigated to a location, by default, that information was shared with Google and available to to Google, primarily to improve the service and to improve the platform. Now you can go into an incognito mode. Do you think this is where we where we land when it comes to privacy, that we'll have a lot of these features of being able to toggle sharing on or off based upon when we're using it, how we're using it, and even certain services where maybe we don't want to share ever at all? I, I think that's direct. That's the direction. In addition to offering incognito mode for maps and location, which is, of course, one of the most sensitive kinds of information you can share, they also are surfacing controls to allow you to automatically wipe your information after a certain amount of time one month, three months, what what have you. And again, it's it's many of these capabilities have been there for some time or similar capabilities. In fact, they even showed a timeline of over the course of 10 years, all of the features that they have introduced to help uh, facilitate control over, over privacy and security. But what they're doing now is really surfacing it. And, and the reason that seems to be the approach that will be prevalent is because for two reasons. One, what it enables in terms of benefit is just very compelling and is going to just become more compelling. And the second reason it's going to become dominant is because if you don't do that, if you're not relying on that level of personalization or that level of data capture, you need to find some other way to generate revenue as Apple does. And that's only going to work for a relatively small segment of the population. We are already seeing it in terms of the music service wars with Apple Music essentially being a subscription only service and Spotify having a massive and expanding tier of free service that operates on advertising in response to in in exchange for essentially you know an unlimited uh, or a very broad music experience it feels like our generation and the generations older than us are not going in and deleting data and and that's one of the frustrations i think that's being voiced broadly about some of the privacy settings that facebook has implemented in past years is there's confusion over who you're sharing information with and when you're sharing it with them but as i look at younger generations gen z and and below my kids are very comfortable going in and deleting information and deleting data and you and i have talked about how they'll go into instagram and delete all of their past photos at different intervals simply when they want a, a fresh reset or don't feel like those those photos represent who they are, who they want to be. So th- it feels like they're much more comfortable as a generation, as a group of individuals willing to go in and control their data and delete it. They recognize the data is there, it's being used, but that they have some control over it and they're willing to exert that control. Where it feels like older generations, as a stereotype here, aren't necessarily predisposed to going in and doing that. To your first point, Sean, there's only, I think, so much you're going to be able to do to expose the controls. And of course, ultimately, it comes down to what is in these companies' interests. And I think that's one reason why Facebook in particular is struggling so mightily with this. And Zuckerberg says, look, it's not going to be about creating a a few new features as Google does, as Google has. 
It's going to be about a fundamental culture shift at the company. And you could argue that from the beginning, or certainly over the past 10 years, Google has been savvier about exposing these controls and has been more aggressive in providing consumers the tools to control their privacy than Facebook has, perhaps in some way, Google has set an example for the kind of approach that Facebook may, may aspire to, because of course, they're not going to abandon the advertising model for the foreseeable future. Well, and looking at some of the other things that were announced at Google I.O., because there were tremendous number of announcements, we saw that they're bringing Google Assistant to the phone. And so that will speed things up. And this is something we've been seeing on the on the horizon for a little while. Qualcomm, for example, at CES was talking a lot about being able to bring AI functionality to the end nodes of a network so that you can do AI applications. And Google Assistant is one example of that on the phone as opposed to having to send it up to the cloud. Not only does that accelerate things and speed things up, but then that also in some ways could create some privacy as well and some security of data if it's being held on the phone. And that's arguably some of Apple's model is keeping information siloed on a device. Yeah, absolutely. I think that Qualcomm has been more vocal about the privacy implications of keeping the uh, voice recognition local. And they've already done some things in smart speakers for more limited kinds of response that keep the voice recognition local. For Google, it was really more about the experience. And I would say this was a good example of them doing things that are trying to get us past today's user interfaces. So it wasn't just the idea that it was local, which they achieved by massively shrinking the database that uh, that they need to go through or the data set that they need to go through. But it was about having a more natural kind of exchange, not only in the speed of the response, but also the need or, or the removal of the need to have to consistently address the phone with with hey google you know just being able to let out a series of commands one after another that would essentially operate the phone i mean you're you're seeing the apps respond in response to the commands but that almost seems or starting to seem more optional and and so you can see as we start to roll out more smart headsets, you know, next generation kinds of things like the AirPods will be able to do far more uh, to interact with the services than we had previously without the service service of a screen. I yeah. think another good example of that was uh, this idea of duplex on the web, which really slices through the complex screens of an application on your phone the same way that duplex for phone calls, which they showed off last year and which allows you to book simple appointments with hairdressers and, and so forth does for a human conversation. So the example they showed was being able to book a car with a combination of intelligence about the steps needed to get through the interface and your personal preferences, many of which have been picked up by your previous actions. So again, this is an example of where sharing your data with Google Assistant, in this case, can offer personalization and ultimately time-saving benefits. And when it comes to that, booking a rental car and having to fill out the forms, I say, yes, please give that to me now. <laughs> I hate filling out those forms constantly. So being able to be able to 
to have that. And even just things like signing documents. I think there's a B2B application that grow out of all of this. And a lot of what we've seen thus far from Duplex was C2B or B2C and mm-hmm. you know, it was booking appointments with a business, finding out what times they were open and available. Now it's still very consumer centric and consumer focused, but I have noticed a move in some of the Google services. And you think of things like G Suite pushing towards small businesses. And I think that that's a a really compelling area for Google to play. And I think you could easily imagine this accelerating business transactions. Another example of uh, personalization we saw through at least one of the hardware announcements that Google made at the show, which was the newly rebranded Nest Home Hub Max. This is essentially a larger version of the Google Home Hub, which saw a name change and a price drop. And uh, the other difference, Sean, as we were talking earlier, is that this one has a camera uh, that can do some of the keeping people in frame tricks that Facebook's portal device Uh, has uh, made a claim to fame for, and it's personalized. So it recognizes you in the room and that's how it knows how to present your calendar. And Google is presenting this as something that you would want in a more public part of your home, such as the kitchen, even though they showed off the original home hub in the kitchen quite a bit and, and the living room. And they went to some length to talk about how, hey, if you want the camera off, there's a switch in the back that will electrically disconnect it so that it is essentially unhackable, I suppose. But it's a great example of the trade-off between making a choice for consumers as the original device did that lacked a camera and giving them the tools to decide whether they want to share data as the new device does. Some of it comes down to a question of settings as well. And for me, you know, I, as you would expect, I've got like six or eight of these throughout my house. I'm right quickly running out of places to put them. <laughs> I have a, a Google Home Hub that I actually have in our dining room. Hmm. And it's amazing how frequently we engage with that while we're having breakfast or whether we're having dinner. And we'll, the screen actually provides a compelling aspect of that experience as opposed to just yelling into the kitchen at Alexa, we're able to um, use the screen. And so I like that. And because of where it's at, implementing and integrating a uh, security feature to it, a security camera aspect to it would make Mm -hmm. a lot of sense because it's in an area of the home where people are are coming and going. So that makes a lot of sense. And that is a good point. Uh, On the other hand, for video calls, it does use Duo which has not been among the most popular video chat apps, but of course it is Google's own. So uh, there's that. And then the other announcement uh, on the hardware side was the Pixel 3a, uh, essentially a less expensive, almost half the price version of Google's smartphone that manages to retain most of, if not all of the excellent imaging quality that it has. And this is going to go head to head against some other strong brands in the mid-tier, both uh, Motorola, Nokia under their new homes, uh, new corporate homes focusing on on that segment, as well as uh, some of the Chinese brands coming into the U.S. market, such as OnePlus, uh, which will be announcing their latest generation, uh, I believe, next week. So to me, it just shows that Google is willing to cut deeper 
into the OEM competition. It's not just about providing an alternative to Samsung, and it's not just about providing an alternative to the iPhone, because Apple doesn't even offer anything at that well, price. And it used to be the Pixel or whatever hardware Google was bringing out, and they've come in and out of that hardware category uh, over time. It used to be the reference design. It was the high-priced premium product really positioned to show you all that Android could be on a phone. The first iteration of that really wasn't to necessarily drive the market, but now you're seeing them, to your point, come out at uh, lower price points and really offer a compelling phone at a reasonable price, at mid-tier price. It, it was, uh, exactly to your point, positioned as the purest expression of Google's vision of Android in its pristine, unskinned state. Right. And um, what what's happened is that what it's really evolved to is this idea of uh, a place where Google can introduce some of its newest technologies first before expanding them to other Android devices and even iOS. We were talking about Google Lens earlier as, as a good example. On the other hand, uh, what they have enabled is a far broader number of Android phones to beta test the next version of Android. So that, you know, if you bought, for example, uh, an L a certain, I think LG is one of the phones they support, you're not necessarily locked out of uh, getting, getting a glimpse of the future. But what hasn't changed is that the Google devices, the Pixel devices tend to be the first to officially support the, the new version and, and to ship with that version. Now you're getting all of that at a, a low, much lower price. So it's a really interesting proposition. I like to see Google in the hardware space. And mm. so I like to see them launching these hardware categories. I think that they can differentiate their products and still maintain strong relationships with their OEM partners. And that's always been the struggle and probably will continue to be a, a struggle. But I think it's good for them to be in that hardware space. And I think it's great to bring out a mid-priced, mid-tier phone that will have access to all of these newest features. Yeah. And then maybe it's just uh, an attempt to goose revenue. I mean, pretty simply, lower price product should result in uh, stronger sales. And maybe they're looking to build a little bit momentum, a little bit of momentum, since after all, this is not uh, an R&D project. Uh, well, but, uh, oh, I'm sorry. And they're doing a lot to also drive Android into the market quicker and to get the most recent updates quicker. So they've mm -hmm. got this project mainline, which they talked about, which is really designed to modulate the up dates so that they can get specific updates out quicker and hopefully have more consumers on the, the newest iterations of Android, but also the most up-to-date as well. And, and that's a privacy and security aspect as well. Uh, some Just some other quick things as we close out news on Google I.O. We saw that Android is bringing live captions to all videos, which means you'll now be able to uh, read all of those videos that you wanted to watch while you were in your office meetings but couldn't because of the volume. Now you can just... Uh, still consume those videos, but you can read them. And they're smart replies to all messaging apps. So that's another good example of their technology filtering and spreading out. And you're really seeing them to make life easier, quicker, whether it's filling out forms, replying, consuming video on your on your phone. All of this is designed to accelerate that. And we saw a lot of those 
you mentioned Google Lens. We saw a lot of those in the Google Lens update. So for example, you can use your camera, point to a receipt, a calculator will pull up so you can add a tip, you could split the bill, you can do real-time translations with foreign language or text-to-speech. So there's a lot of things that are designed to streamline communication and, and streamline interactions. So a lot of great things coming out of Google I.O. Uh, now let's roll over to the lightning round. We'll jump in quickly with three stories. First, the breakup of Facebook or the constant calls to break up Facebook were driven a little bit higher this week. Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin had some major announcements. And finally, Redfin launches Redfin Direct, which is a feature that lets home buyers make offers on homes directly without the use of an agent. They're starting that in Boston. So let's jump in, Ross, your take on the breakup of Facebook. So um, Epic, op-ed piece in the New York Times by one of uh, Facebook's uh, co-founders that simultaneously says that Zuckerberg is a well-intentioned guy, but just has too much absolute power. So if you think about how Facebook would be divided up, off the top of my head, I'd say maybe four divisions, the social network, all the messaging apps, YouTube, and maybe Oculus. And of those four, three are very strong, robust businesses that are have very high market share, if not outright monopolies in their space. So I'm not necessarily convinced that it would open the market to many new entrants. I mean, trying to launch a social network to compete with Facebook would be very daunting and very difficult, even if they didn't have the Instagram and WhatsApp pieces. And you might have to prevent Facebook from launching a messaging function for whatever, a period of five years. The benefit, I suppose, would be that Zuckerberg really couldn't be CEO of all three or four of those companies. So that might be the opportunity to reduce his personal influence, even if it wouldn't necessarily change the market in at least the short term. I'm not sure that it really matters. I, I, <laughs> I mean, it's not clear to me what you break it up into. We can think about those historic divisions of the companies that existed before they were acquired by Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and then Facebook by itself. Some breaking off the messaging piece. But even as separate entities, we could still integrate communications across those platforms, which is something I think that they should do so that you can more easily communicate across those platforms. And that then competes more head-to-head -head with iMessage. And then I'm just not sure that it really matters. You can compete with these platforms. The ability to scale up quickly, the ability to enter these markets exists there. So from a traditional antitrust standpoint, it's not clear to me that they're inhibiting competitors from entering the market. If you look at younger generations, they're using other social networks, not in that Facebook portfolio like TikTok and other ways of messaging. Yes, they have gravitated towards Instagram, but none of my kids and none of their cohorts have any interest in having a Facebook account. And I'm not sure that will ever change. I don't know that they'll ever feel compelled to move to that platform. I think it's much more likely that their parents will move to whatever platform they're on. And that's 
been true in the past. Our parents got on Facebook because we were there and we were sharing photos of kids and they followed others onto Instagram. Those younger generations are going to define the meaningful platforms. And it isn't clear to me that Facebook has any monopoly power over what those younger generations do. So just uh, first of all, a quick correction. I, I said YouTube, which is, of course, owned by Google. I guess I was thinking of breaking up Google. Uh, but uh, what what if what, what if you took the Facebook social network itself, sort of more like an AT&T breakup, and just divided it into two or three or even more pieces and told people, you know, they had to pick one or just gave everybody access to all of them at once? Do you think that that might do it? So again, I I question what? How do you break them up? Do you break them up by geography? Do you mm. break them up by age? Random. Or by some, yeah, I mean, do you randomly push people into to different things? I mean, it feels like engagement levels are already declining for mm. the traditional Facebook platform, uh, or at least have plateaued. Certainly, their their revenue is continuing to grow from advertising uh, as for the entire organization. But I think engagement on your traditional Facebook platform is stagnant at best. And then I think you're seeing them roll out other features like the buy button on Instagram in order to diversify some of that ad-based revenue and offer more compelling reasons for people to be on those platforms. But the, the history of, of social medias in the digital world, and it's a short history, has been one that startups can come in and, and disrupt that space. One of the things to Facebook's credit that they've done is try to anticipate what those promising platforms are in the world and then entered in those spaces by acquiring them and trying to integrate them. I'm still convinced that the future of these platforms is to be more directly tied to commerce. And mm -hmm. you saw this week Facebook hiring about 100 people in London and using that to establish a base to push payments on WhatsApp. I think a lot of what you're seeing uh, Google announced during Google I.O. is around payments and, and trying to drive commerce. There's no reason why some of these features that they've rolled out, like filling out forms for rental cars, couldn't over time allow them to enter into those markets. And so I'm just not convinced that breaking up Facebook into any number of different entities gets us what we want. Point number two, Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin had some major announcements here in Washington, D.C. Jeff Bezos becomes uh, yet another billionaire who has visions of space exploration a very different vision than Elon Musk, who started SpaceX, whereas Musk believes that it's only a matter of time. Well, they, they both have visions of the Earth not being able to sustain us in the long run. But the difference is Musk believes that we will eventually have to live on other planets and wants to turn Mars into uh, perhaps a second home for humans. Whereas Bezos believes we can address the limited resources, limited natural resources of Earth by essentially mining natural resources from other parts of the solar system or perhaps the galaxy. Uh, that said, uh, they're still going to we're still going to reach some kind of population overflow at some point, which is why he foresees these gigantic floating stations that would accommodate up to perhaps a million people. So the, the size of a pretty recent, pre pretty decently sized city. 
with all the amenities that we <laughs> take for granted on earth today, farms and, uh, and air and, you know, recreation, a, a very earth-like experience, uh, because it would be very close to earth. You know, we, you'd be able to commute, uh, back and forth to, to earth. So I think it's worth noting that Bezos said that he has been investing a billion dollars a year into this uh, endeavor for I'm not sure how many years, but uh, it, it really shows the the long game that this is behind. And it uh, I, I think it rekindles some of the excitement of space exploration from the 50s and 60s, uh, which, of course, was um, when Bezos grew up. So. Uh, obviously, it's going to take uh, decades for for this to play out, but um, but it it could wind up being his uh, his greatest legacy, I suppose. Well, and I think when you look at San Francisco and one in what every eleven thousand individuals is a billionaire, uh, maybe they're feeling the pressure to get out of San Francisco. Where to go? Why not just go to space? <laughs> I, 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 for one, I hate potentially commuting, the only so. place where, where, where the real estate prices could be higher. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I hate commuting into the city. So let alone commuting to the moon and back. I don't know, but uh, sign me up or, or at least our, our kids or grandkids. That's right. I'll get on right. the waiting list now. I might as well get on the waiting list. It's like Red Sox season tickets. Just put yourself <laughs> on the waiting list. Final story in our lightning round Redfin launches Redfin Direct. This is a feature that they've tested in the past. It allows home buyers to make offers directly on homes and forego agents. They obviously didn't make a big splash about this because a big part of Redfin's business model is Redfin agents who are live in-person realtors that help unlock doors and help you navigate the the challenge of, of making an offer on a home. So while they're competing and undermining their their realtors. They didn't want to make a, a big splash about it. Obviously, though, when you think about streamlining services, this is one that could be streamlined. It's expensive, arguably more expensive than it needs to be in many instances. And this is a way of, of um, moving around some of those expenses. And it seems like this type of service is perfectly positioned for digital platforms like Redfin or Zillow or any of the others. And just one example of ways that we can streamline making transactions on digital platforms. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Redfin already has a very low listing fees. And uh, at least initially, this is going to be an appeal, I think, for a different kind of customer who really wants that disintermediated experience, but I'm sure they're thinking that we have to do this because if we don't, it's only a matter of time before perhaps one of the other companies that you mentioned launches something like it. So it's a classic example of cannibalizing your own product rather than take the risk of someone else cannibalizing it. And Redfin was quick to note that it wasn't a bunch of low offers that came in of, of 122 listings in the on Boston Redfin that accepted an offer since March 28th. They said that five were direct offers and 12 had been rejected, but they were all within about 5% of the asking price. Hmm. So these aren't 
people just throwing out prices, but it does drive the question of in a world where everyone's connected and information dissemination is easy, you could create uh, essentially many auctions for your your home. And that could make a lot of sense in markets that have tight, uh, tight supply of, of homes. And right now that's most urban settings. So it will be interesting to see how this develops both within Redfin and to your point, Ross, outside of, of Redfin. So our startup of the week is Factmata. Uh, they've been around for some time and they are looking to address the fake news issue through a combination of crowdsourcing and machine learning. So it is potentially a way to offer fact-checking without some of these accusations of bias that some of the existing fact-checking sources are uh, sometimes labeled with. Uh, they claim they have been able to achieve a 90% uh, success rate in terms of um, the, uh, the, the fact uh, verifying, rather, wh whether a story is true. And just like we discussed last week, Sean, I think this is a great example of technology addressing an ill that technology created. And uh, I know that you've mentioned several times about how we have all but solved the spam problem. And uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a reason to be optimistic that an offering such as this uh, would help us reduce or potentially neutralize uh, the, this problem of uh, fake information spreading. When I look at the younger generations, this seems to be one of the, the biggest issues that they will have to deal with is not access to information, but access to reliable information and being able to decipher reliable information. And this is an area that I think education should be highly focused on right now, not just teaching the tools of the trade, but helping them understand how to decipher right information. So this is the, the critical reasoning that is needed for the next generation. And so it's, I think it's interesting to see services rise up that will essentially automate some of that. Uh, we'll, I, we'll see how well they do anything that's crowdsourced in an area that that tries to tackle fake news uh, could be a very challenging area because there's some fake news that is debated by, by, sure. yeah, by, by two sides. So Sure. I, I agree that I think it's it's a tool. Um, it's part of the solution. Uh, to your point, uh, Walt Mossberg, the um, well-known uh, columnist for the Wall Street Journal and uh, Recode in, uh, later in his career, uh, is one of the people working in a, a group called the News Literacy Project, uh, which is trying to do exactly what you say, Sean, uh, educate younger people and hone their... BS meter, if you will, yeah, uh, to, um, to to be more savvy about the information they consume. Good. Well, with that, let's close out another episode of Techspansive. Thanks again for joining us. I'm Sean Dubrovac. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubrovac. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating on our podcast share it with friends we greatly appreciate that send us feedback and check out this the website where you'll be able to find transcripts for this episode and also past episodes